You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. I know, I know they just mentioned it, but for those of you that can make cause to live for, honestly, I highly recommend it. Um, the Lord's doing something amazing here. Uh, I love the fact that they're writing new songs in worship. I love the fact that the youth this morning for the first time are gathering for worship and teaching and ministry. They're doing that once a month now. They've not had the capacity to do that before, but youth is growing as well. Things are growing and the Lord is doing an incredible thing and we want to be trained and equipped for it. I had the delight of hearing one of the seminars that's going to be done at uh, Cause to Live for on Deliverance. And it's, it's actually, it was the best teaching I've ever heard. It was incredible. So if you can be there, honestly be there. But um, I just, I want to tell you something this morning. Steph and I went out for a meal the other week with our kids to um, Pizza Express. You've got to love that place, partly because you can use vouchers there. And uh, <clears throat> I know that's why we all go. But anyway, when you're there, it's kind of the law, I think, that when you go there, you have dough balls. And um, so because it's the law, I had dough balls. And uh, you, you basically, you can't not. Anyway, as we're about to have them, uh, one of our daughters says, oh, no, I've dropped my dough ball. And uh, it lands on the floor. And for that split second moment, I was just transported into this parallel universe. And my head's down. And I'm literally, I was just staring at my dough balls when she said it. And I've got 10. And uh, I didn't really have time to think or to adjust my gaze or to work out how I was going to react. And I heard Steph saying, oh, don't worry, it's okay, you can have one of mine. And um, in, in that moment, I had one of those life moments where I realized what had happened. And I just felt this like deep sense of conviction because everything within me had actually been consumed by what was mine and not really wanting to share it or even part of it with my dearest, darling, eldest daughter that I love with everything within me. And in those moments, I don't know if you've ever had one, you kind of just get this mirror held up to you. And by Steph's actions, I had this deep sense of conviction. And I, I know, I know, I know, I know it's, it's kind of just a day ball when it's not actually that big a deal. But actually, if I'm honest, it kind of was because I want to be soft and I want to be teachable and I want to be shaped by the spirit rather than my own humanness. And I want to fall in line with the obedience of who I could be and one day who I will be. And therefore found myself dwelling on this really simple moment just a number of times over the last few weeks. Um, and today, I, I kind of want to offer you, if I can, a doble moment, because we're in the middle of a series in, in the book of Luke, and I've called it How To, because we want to learn how to do the stuff that Jesus did. We don't want to just talk about it. And the passage we're going to land on today as we've kind of tracked through it is Luke chapter 12. And I have to say that I used to find the talk I'm about to do probably the hardest talk that I would ever do or give to the church, because we're going to be talking about money. And I used to find it hard because instantly, even just saying that word, I've kind of just drawn a line between me and you, because so many people instantly will become defensive. Oh, here he goes. I, I can talk about loads of stuff that actually might make you feel a bit uncomfortable and a bit awkward, but not necessarily defensive in quite the same way. But I, before we even look at it, I want, I want to say this. There's over 2,000 references to money in the Bible. Jesus talked about it more than heaven and hell combined. Over 15% of his teaching was about it. 11 of his parables mention it. Only the kingdom of God actually gets more attention in his teaching, and yet money is such a deeply private thing. 
And it's so important, though, that actually I believe we should see conversations like this really about pastoral care, because if we neglect it, it really can do us harm. But before we, 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 we look at this passage today and dig in, I want to tell you something that I think is really quite important before we even look at it. This is our choice. This is not something that is dictated to us, but Steph and I do not know what you give financially to the church. We don't know. I need you to know that. I know many church leaders do know. They say you need to know. They believe it's a key issue for discipleship. I actually just read a book this week whilst we were off that would disagree with the position that we held and would say that we need to know it. I am not trying to criticize other people. I just want you to know we don't know. And so this morning, everything I say, I don't relate to you or speak to you from the perspective of knowing what you do or do not give. I speak to you, I hope, as I always would, with a faithfulness to the scriptures and what I believe Jesus is teaching us. And so if you feel like I'm attacking you or harassing you over this, firstly, I want to say I don't work like that. Secondly, I actually have no idea what you give or whether or not you do or don't give. Some people on occasion have wanted to talk to me about giving and how they might meet, meet a particular need. And I honour the desire of them to have a conversation about that. But I don't know what people give. We do know if leaders give. We don't know what they give. But we know if they give because it is a core value and a discipleship question. I hope that just gives you a moment of freedom to relax today as we dig into the dough balls. Um, <clears throat> gosh, I'm getting hungry. I don't know about you. But today, I just want to look at how to, how to live a full and generous life. We're going to look at five things very briefly. Don't panic. It's not five long things. But we're going to look at life is not defined by a lot of stuff. Life is more than food and clothes. Life is not wasted by worry. Sorry, life is wasted by worry. Life is for seeking God and his kingdom. And then finally, life follows treasure. And I hope this for us in the season we're in as a church is life-giving. But let's just look at Luke 12 and start at verse 13. It says this, then someone called from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, beware, God against every kind of greed, life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all of my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have enough room to store all of my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then you will get everything you worked for. Sorry, then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. What is life? To someone in the crowd who said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, we see it in verse 13. I think it's a really interesting thing to yell out in a crowd. That's kind of a thing that you would think you would work out inside of a family. If there's an inheritance to be divided, it means that there's a death to be mourned. One of his parents has just died. 
probably it's thought that it was the person's father and he doesn't seem interested to find help with the mourning or the grief. The man's not at the funeral. He's not talking with his brother. He's trying to find somebody with authority to tell him how to split his brother's money. And however, Jesus doesn't get entangled in these petty family disputes. Jesus disciplines to, to stoop into this petty conflict about material possessions. His agenda is to focus on life and the state of their hearts. And what Jesus does, I think, reveals five clear things. So the first off is this. Life is not defined by lots of stuff. It really isn't, but actually it is, isn't it? When we think about it, it shouldn't be, but so often it can be because we get so easily and so quickly wrapped up in stuff. And I think, I know I do, I often need this moment like I had with the Dobles, just a small moment that became a big moment because greed is wanting something that doesn't belong to you. It's kind of a possessive jealousy. It's a sin of the heart that can lead to other sins like stealing and adultery and so on because it grows. And Jesus says to this man, and I think he would say to us, watch out and be on your guard against all greed. Here's, here's why, because one's life is not in the abundance of his own possessions. That's what verse 15 is saying. Then he said, beware, God against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. It's so easy, isn't it? Or maybe it's just me to have and start to have our lives dictated by what we have or what we want. One of the fastest growing businesses at the moment is storage because we cover and we hoard and then we buy more and we need more space and we continue hoarding and coveting. And Jesus says this way of thinking is foolish. And he tells a story of a man building a bigger barn and as a way of holding all of his stuff. And some people think the good life is relaxing and eating and drinking and being merry. That's what we see in verse 19. And the people who defined life by what they possessed and enjoyed in this passage are referred to as fools. It's foolish to think our lives will not one day end. It's foolish to think our lives are defined by what we have. There is a way to be rich towards ourselves and yet stingy towards God, and God would refer to that as foolish. Verse 21, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. I'm, I'm not saying you can't have I'm just saying even what you do have actually isn't yours because it's all his. We're just stewards of it and we're called to be faithful stewards. It's so easy to think that we need more than, than we do and we want more than we should have. For me, as I thought and reflected on this passage, that's my doble moment. My second point is this, life is more than food and clothes. Verse 22 says this, Then turning to the disciples, Jesus said, That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear, for life is more than food and your body more than clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for God feeds them, and you're far more valuable to him than any birds. Verse 
22, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, your body, your wardrobe. Don't worry about these things because your needs are not your life. In fact, your life is more than those things. Life is not defined by the things we have. Life is worth more than all of our things. Jesus gives an illustration and the reason you should not worry about your needs, the reason that your life is worth more than your needs is that you and I are worth far more to God than the ravens. You know, if God cares and provides for ravens, then he'll care and provide for us. And I sometimes think that very passage, that very verse gets tested. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God will provide for us because we're worth so much more to him? It's not wrong to think that if you don't have anything, then, then, then you're worth nothing. So it is wrong to think that. If you don't have anything, then you're worth nothing. It's wrong. Jesus says, aren't you worth more, so much more than the birds get? He's almost asking this rhetorical question with a really obvious answer. Of course you're worth more. That is a fact. We can't judge our lives or God's care for us by our possessions. Have some of you almost fallen into the trap of doing that because you're worth far more than your needs and your life is not determined by your possessions? I believe actually that could be quite liberating for some of you because money can be a worry. Money can so easily become a tension. And sometimes it's easy to feel that because you're running a tight ship, you're doing something wrong. We often don't realize Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. Sometimes it's so important to get to that place. Is he's all we need because actually he is all we have. Life is so much more than the things that we can get drawn into believing it is or making it. And we need to start to be people that have an elevated perspective. The third point is this. Life is wasted by worry. Generosity is so crucial, and yet worry can rob us of generosity. What I'm personally feeling and almost seeing at the moment is every conversation, every conversation everywhere seems to be about rising costs. I don't think I go half a day without stumbling into it. And what that almost consciously and subconsciously does is that it could cause us to pull up the drawbridge of generosity because it teaches us to look out for and focus on our own needs. And the reality is, though, that we have had to have a mindset and a perspective that is above that, and our personal finances are to come under a kingdom mindset and a sustainability that can unleash generosity rather than worry. Verse 25 says this, Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And if you worry, can't, and if, sorry, if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, what's the use worrying over bigger things? Look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Perhaps the people were saying to themselves, Jesus, that's fine, but I've still got to eat. How am I going to get thing through this thing called life? And so Jesus says to them, verse 25, can all your worries 
add a single moment to your life. And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, what's the use of worrying about bigger things? The world is so full of worry. Do you find that? Do you see that? We're tempted to think that worry is the same thing as thinking or planning or even protecting ourselves. But worry is completely useless and ineffective when it comes to adding anything to our life. Jesus calls adding a minute to our lives a little thing. So if we can't add a minute to our lives by worry, why do we think that things like protecting our children or getting good jobs or ending wars or making our neighborhoods safe can be done through worry? They're all good things, but they can't be things that can be addressed by worry because we're called not to worry. We're called to trust God. In fact, every place where we experience worry, I believe God is inviting us to depend on him. Verse 27 says this, look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? God dresses grass better than kings if that's how god clothes grass which is in the field today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow how much more will he do for you he almost ponders and questions and says you of little faith and i think jesus is saying that when it comes to life god's got you he will supply your needs do we need evidence of that we look at the beauty that he places on the flowers and the short-lived grass. Does God not provide for all of his creation? He will provide for those who bear his image in his likeness. And it is for us to be people that step into belief. What's the reverse of worry? I think it's trust. And what does trust look like? Trust starts to look like faith. So how are we meant to live? What should it look like we counter worry with generosity? I want to say a huge thank you to you as a church, as a body, as a family. You are remarkably generous people. All that we are and all that we've become as a church is through your extravagant generosity. And it continues and it continues and it continues. Through the pantry at 422, we give away an average of 178 kilograms of supermarket surplus and donations each week to the members that are referred much of that stuff actually comes through your giving and your extended generosity. That feeds an average of 73 people a week and the team are developing ways to maximise that to make room for more. The 422 Cafe gives away a minimum of 30 meals each week that are provided through other people paying it forward. That provides fresh homemade meals to people who couldn't otherwise afford it. Before the new school year began, we were able to give away school uniforms for families in the pantry that were feeling the stretch. That's high quality new blazers, thick winter coats, skirts, polo shirts, jumpers, the school summer holiday club made space for 29 families and 63 children through activities that were put on. A team of 15 people from here in this church gave away 224 lunch bags and 40 packs to school packs for children who were going back to school. We have before and we will again prioritise helping others 
and stepping into and reaching beyond our own needs before meeting our own. As a church, we give away as a minimum 15% of everything that comes in to things that don't directly benefit ourselves. We've shared that in the vision talk and we'll share it again in the next one, some of the detail of that. But we have to be and we have to keep being generous even in a time of perceived restraint. Living by kingdom values is not swayed by the season or the flavour of the day. We want to live according to kingdom principles and kingdom values. The fourth thing I wanted to say is this. Life is for seeking God and his kingdom. Verse 29, don't be concerned about what you'll eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world. But your father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and he will give you everything you need. When people seek God and his kingdom, God meets their need in life. In fact, life is meant to be lived seeking God and his kingdom. The natural consequence of doing that is God then takes care of those who are seeking him. We can't find life and we will worry apart from God. But the Father knows our needs. I find so much comfort in that verse. Verse 30, your Father already knows your needs. Verse 31, seek the kingdom of God above all else and he will give you everything you need long before we pray long before we ask even before we know what our needs are our father in heaven sees and knows our needs he never leaves us and he never forsakes us he's never caught off guard by our needs there's no need that our heavenly father cannot supply the purpose of life is to seek God and to seek his kingdom and he provides within that kingdom for people's needs. We receive a kingdom in exchange for worry. Why does it work this well? Well, the, the neediest people in the world are those who do not have the kingdom of God. That's our greatest need. When we seek the kingdom and God, we not only have our greatest needs met, but we also have our lesser needs met. We kind of I think have to let the penny drop on the excuse the pun, but we, we can have everything in the world, but without the kingdom, we're broke. We can have it all, but without God and the kingdom, we've got nothing. Are we using our lives to seek God and his kingdom or to seek the things we think we need? Because life is not a lot of stuff, yet life is more than food and clothes. Life is wasted by worry. Instead, the reason we've been given life is to seek God and his kingdom. Final point is this, life follows treasure. Verse 32, don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give it to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And don't, and, and the, the, the purses of heaven will never grow old or develop holes your treasure will be safe no thief can steal it and no moth can destroy it wherever your treasure is there the desires of your heart will also be don't you find verse 32 so deeply encouraging it says don't be afraid little flock for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom when i thought about this i thought would he would he call us that as a church i love it hey little flock 
I'd love it if he referred to us like that. Don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. We aren't searching for something we can't find. It's not hidden in a way that we miss it. It delights our father to give us and show us the kingdom. It delights the father to give his children his royal possession. He doesn't resent giving it to us. It delights him as his children. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And when we realize this, then the world's possessions and needs, they start to lose their grip on us. That's why the Lord gives us the application in verse 33, sell your possessions, give to those in need. This will store up for you treasure in heaven and the purses of heaven will never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it and no moth can destroy it. We can use this life's possessions to bless the needy because we know that the Father gives us a kingdom and a treasure that cannot be taken away, cannot be stolen and will not decay. We can give to others because the Father has given to us. We can part with our things because the treasure in heaven is greater than anything we might have or own here. It's that simple that our life follows our treasure. Verse 34, wherever your treasure is there, the desires of your heart will also be the key to life is to have treasure in heaven and to be rich towards God. We do not live life for ourselves and what may be gained on this earth. We have life to seek and we have a God to know. I want to make an unashamed invitation to you to be generous towards this church. We intend to see this church grow because that's the business the Lord is in. We intend to step into the vision God has called us to. I believe we're in a significant moment. This isn't about covering costs. We are growing and looking for solutions to accommodate growth. We get to partner with God in all that is unfolding among us. We're not externally funded and everything we do is through the generosity of the people among us. This is crucial though and honestly please I beg you not to make a mistake I've made in previous churches. You're not giving to me. You're giving as much as I hope you trust us and the way we lead this church isn't based on us. It's based on him. It's not ours and he asks us to do it. It's so easy to get trapped in this one. And I know I have in seasons of my life before. God, you can have. God, you can have a bit of my time. You can have a bit of my headspace. You can have a bit of my life choices. But money, that's mine. My view now would be, well, kind of, because he actually lets you have it in the first place. It's not really yours. It's all his. So often we find ourselves with 10 dobles, which is more than enough. Sometimes I think we even have this 10% mentality. It's often banded around and throwed around. He can have 10% if he's lucky. So I'm not trying to be blasphemous. I just want to speak into the reality because actually in the Western church, research shows that giving on average is actually 4%. Imagine if the Western church had 10%, what it would be able to do with it, but we digress. I often actually see it the other way. Goodness me, he lets us keep 90%. 
actually, I think we have to be careful because sometimes it doesn't take long for that 90% to start to control and dictate us. It's mine. Well, actually, really, it's all his. 10%, I think, anyway, is a really fascinating conversation. Paul, how can you say 10%? Well, I would say this. Firstly, I actually think it is really helpful to have a guide. The Bible guides us on most things, and it just feels like this particular area is a bit more prickly or sensitive than others. But we're under grace, not law, so let's not be legalistic. I could say 10%, I think, if we looked at the Old Testament. Let's just very briefly do that. It says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of the tithes and the offerings due to me. You are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so that there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great that you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they're ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. The word tithe literally means tenth part or one-tenth. You can't tithe two percent of your income. You can't tithe a few pounds a week if your income is more than a couple of hundred pounds. The call to tithe, the call to give one-tenth of one's income is mentioned 32 times in the Old Testament. We read of the first tithe, the tenth part in Genesis 14, before the institution of the old covenant, Abraham gives one-tenth of the spoils of war to Melchizedek, who was the priest of the Most High God. Abraham gives Melchizedek this tenth of the spoils in recognition that Abraham's military victory wasn't achieved by his strength alone, but by God's power. And Abraham is a man who recognises that he's utterly dependent on the Lord for his success. This passage in Malachi, I think, is actually quite fascinating because when they gave him less than the whole tithe, when they gave him two or five or seven percent, they're robbing him. I'm kind of, I read that and I'm like, wow, you talk about turning people's accusations on the head. The people are saying, God, you're holding back from us. And he's saying, no, it's you that have held back from me. It is you that haven't kept your end of the covenant bargain. I saved you. I gave you a blessing. You're mine, and as a king, a tenth of everything belongs to me, and you're holding back. You give me whatever is in your wallet, whatever is left over after you've paid the bills, after you buy everything you think you need. Actually, I want the whole tithe. And some people say the storehouse Tithing is equals the, the church, and you should almost teach this storehouse tithing. I think, personally, I think it's a bit of a stretch to call a local church the storehouse of heaven. And the reason I believe, and I say this because this is what we do personally, I believe that the local church is to be given the whole tithe and offerings above that to other Christian organizations or to the poor or to a small group need. I say that because... The whole New Testament teaches that the local church is the fundamental agent of the kingdom of God in this world. It's plan A. And the center of God's plan in reaching the world is the local church. And 
is kind of what I was saying in the final two points from the passage a moment ago, that life is for seeking God and his kingdom and life follows treasure. And the local church, I believe, ought to be the center of our giving. But actually, I say this because beyond that, we give offerings. Our generosity doesn't stop at 10%. Let's, just for a moment, because it might be helpful for some of you, let's chuck out 10%. I don't actually believe that, but I just want to see it another way. If we were to say, I believe that under the new covenant, we ought to give as the Spirit of God leads us, I have no difficulty whatsoever with that. I actually completely agree. I think that is an incredibly unhealthy interpretation of the Bible. But my question to myself and the question to us collectively would be this. How will the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, lead you? Because the challenge of the freedom of the Spirit and being Spirit-led is that God has given us so much more than what he gave the children of Israel in the Old Covenant. We have his Son, we have Jesus, we have his life and his teaching and a record of the miracles in the New Testament. We have the death of the Son of God, we have his resurrection, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit, we have the assurance of eternal life and we have the blessing of the Christian church. And if I say I'm going to give as the Spirit leads, will the Holy Spirit lead me to give less than the Jews were required to give under the old covenant. Let me just for a moment, if I can, just pause and jump back to what I said right at the beginning. If you feel conviction through what I'm saying today, I'm not targeting you. If you feel condemned, I'm not targeting you. I have no idea about your giving. That's between you and the Lord. My desire is to stir among us generosity because I believe that is the way of the Lord. And personally... For Steph and I, this deeply convicts us. Because so often, I've got my dough balls looking at my plate, and I want to keep it. But it's not mine. It's all his. And if the Spirit were to lead me, surely he'd lead me into generosity rather than restriction. It's not ours, it's his. And it's going to be painful if we see it as ours. We just have to keep giving it away because life follows treasure. Let me finish with this. 1 Corinthians 9 Verse 9, as the scriptures say, they share freely and generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides the seed of the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. We have to realize what's ours isn't actually ours. A farmer who plants only a few seed will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. I'm not saying we give to receive, but we give because it isn't ours in the first place. We give because it's bigger than us, because it's an investment in eternity, and it could make an impact bigger than us and anything we could see or imagine. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 7, you must each decide in your heart, how much to give. Don't give reluctantly and don't give in response to pressure for God loves a person who gives cheerfully and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. I want to encourage you to review what you're doing. What do you give? Do you give? Do you start, need to start giving? Do you need to increase your giving? Have you had a pay rise? Have you had 
a change in circumstances? Do you give reluctantly? Do you give minimally? Have you decided you don't need to give because your finances don't allow it? Honestly, they never will. But we are only stewards of what is his and not ours. We're going to continue as a church to step into the things we believe God has called us to do. We're going to continue to take risks, not recklessly, but faith-led, spirit-led. And I personally don't want to be a limiter on what could be limitless. As we give generously, we will see a generous crop produced. To step into this next chapter, but we believe God has for us, we will need to see an uplift financially, and we're praying for that. In a downturn, we're not going to back off. There's booklets on your seats that you may find helpful to understand a bit of the, f- the vision and the fulfillment of this as a church. I'd encourage you, I'd challenge you to take a moment to review it and to do something about it. And if you have already done so and you're able to gift aid, that will increase whatever you give by 25%. Can my final sentence be this? Honestly, if you've come here today and you've heard this, outside of my heart for you and outside of the context of this being a wider picture of your discipleship then I'm sorry equally sometimes the challenge of the mind can reveal the heart and you need to work that out but if you feel pressure and if you feel guilt then I'm sorry And that's not what I'm saying. I hope the landing point for you would be this. You must decide in your own heart how much to give. Don't give reluctantly. And don't give in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Why don't we stand together? We're just going to spend a bit of time now resting in God's presence. If you feel comfortable, why don't you just close your eyes? As we welcome the Holy Spirit to move among us, to speak to us, to be ministering to us challenging and encouraging us in only the way that he can do. And I encourage you in this moment to... um, to each of us to just ask the Lord how how can I become more generous that's a question that we should regularly be asking him as we're in conversation with him 
as our lives are in, in continual review as disciples and apprentices of Jesus. So why don't we ask him in our hearts now, how can I become more generous in my heart, in my time, in my finances, in whatever way it is? Can I give more of my gifts? Can I give more of my money? Can I give more of my heart? Can I give more of my time? We just lay it all before him again this morning and say, we're yours, Lord. We are your servants. Spend us as you choose. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. You're so welcome here. Thank you, Just, I just believe the Lord inviting us as a as a church body this morning to almost relent, uh, repent of reluctance that there would be a, a an overflow of a willingness to sow seeds of generosity. I don't just mean in a financial context. I think the, the overflow of our hearts, Lord, would you stir up a generosity in us to each other, to this city, to the needs. To the people, would you break our hearts afresh? I believe um, some of you in this room, there's, there's, a, there's a moment where you've been pondering a couple of things, and I think the, the, this is almost like a, an encouragement for you to now step into it. Just even over the last few weeks, I think some of you have been stirred. I think some of you have been stirred to make a significant dif- difference in your um employment in your workplaces i think some of you almost had um ideas of uh, buying houses to rent houses to enable people to live in certain areas to extend the kingdom i think these kind of things i just pray that the lord grows seeds this morning of generosity i think some of you will have uh, almost got a sense of like lack that you've held um I believe there's a couple of you even students where you're like, well, I don't have, but actually it's realising what you do have. You're so rich. Rich in the kingdom and rich in the resource of his riches. Lord, birth something in us as a people, I pray. I pray that we'd be so countercultural, so kingdom-orientated. as well for those of you that this morning feels deeply offensive I 
pray that the offence doesn't restrict what the Lord is trying to do among us in extending to him the generosity of our hearts sold and spent on him. The Spirit of God come upon us. There was a specific word from the prayer team this morning about a right-hand side, a feeling of a pull on the upper neck and a, yeah, a significant symptom that you've had that God would bring healing to. And I sense that God is inviting people to loosen their hearts and open up and experience God and lay down the stuff that's hold them back and an encouragement to step in afresh, an encouragement to surrender all over again regardless of previous relationship with him or experience of life or of church. God is saying he's the master builder and where there's ruins or ashes, he rebuilds from those ruins. There may also be some of you in this room who you just... Um, you would recognise that you're consumed in fear. Um, there are these fears or worries that are shouting quite loudly at you. You feel quite tormented by that and um, to the point where you feel utterly distracted most of the time. Even this morning, you're kind of like, I, I don't know that I could necessarily say what was even spoken on because I'm so distracted by these fears that I'm consumed by. So we would love to pray for you for that to break for any affliction over you to be broken off you and um for you to walk in freedom from those fears as we've looked at this morning in the scripture the only fear we really need to have is a fear of the lord and we can be secure in our value in him he places such high value on us he loves us Thanks for listening. To find out more, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description.